Well, good morning. Hope everyone is doing well today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Exodus. Turn to the book of Exodus chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5. So for the last few weeks, we've been going over the first four chapters of the book of Exodus. We've been introduced to the main characters and the setting of this grand narrative in the Old Testament. We've met Israel, God's chosen people who are now living in slavery to Pharaoh of Egypt. We've met Pharaoh, uh, a person or a, a status rather of multiple people that we see throughout the story that is filled by men who are wicked and evil and declare themselves to be God and want nothing to do with submitting themselves to the people of Israel because Israel is their slave. We met Moses and Aaron, uh, two Israelites, two Levites that we'll see today in more detail. And specifically, Moses is being raised up to be the deliverer of God's people out of slavery in Egypt. And so the stage has been set. After God calls Moses from the burning bush and sends him back to Egypt with his family, the stage has been set for a showdown between the God of Israel and Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron have been sent by God to deliver the people of Israel from their slavery. And the elders of Israel, we saw last Sunday, have now heard the message from Moses and Aaron, and they have believed that the Lord was doing something miraculous in their midst. And so today, we want to continue that story, and you see on the screen the title of today's message is The Battle Begins. We're going to see kind of stage one of this battle between Israel and Pharaoh. And today we want to focus in on this, this idea, which is that the faithfulness of God's people to God's word doesn't always produce what we want, but the God who leads and reigns is never defeated. So when you and I or the people of God, when we obey God's commands, when we obey God's words, it doesn't always turn out the way we think it will. But that doesn't mean that God has failed. That doesn't mean that God has been defeated. And as we'll see in this story, God will promise to bring about signs and wonders that will display his glory for the world to see. So we're gonna see this in a few ways. First, in chapter five, we're gonna see that Moses fails and the people doubt. Moses fails, and the people doubt. Moses and Aaron have now gone back to Pharaoh, and they are asking for the Israelites to be let go. So look at chapter five, starting in verse one. This is afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now let's just pause there. Listen to Moses and Aaron's command, right? Aaron and Moses, these two 80-year-old men come to this new young Pharaoh and they say, hey, look, the God of Israel has spoken to us. Let the people of Israel go. If you're a young ruler, if you're a new king, a new Pharaoh in Egypt, and you're trying to show yourself to be strong and mighty and powerful and respected, if you're a new ruler that people believe to be a God in the flesh, how would you respond to this demand 
from your slaves. Let God's people go? Pharaoh probably wondered. They're his slaves. What, what, what right does the slave have to say to the king to do anything? So let's look at verse two. He says, but Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. So more than, more than not letting Israel go because they're his slaves, he says, I don't even know who you're talking about. I don't, who is the Lord? Who is your God? Who does this God of Israel think he is? And so Pharaoh needs to make a lesson uh, out of Israel for anyone who would try to threaten his power or his authority. We're not gonna read the whole section, but what happens is, is that Pharaoh and, tells Moses and Aaron that he will not let Israel go. He does not know the Lord. He does not recognize the Lord. And then he accuses Moses and Aaron of trying to sabotage the work of Israel. So what does Pharaoh do in response? Pharaoh increases the burdens of Israel. He increases their work. And Pharaoh begins to say about the Israelites, they're idle. They're idle. They're not working hard. They're not doing enough work. They're trying to get something out of this because they're, they're being lazy. They're, they're getting something out of this because they think that I'm gonna show them mercy. It reminds me, I don't know if you've seen this movie, but uh, it's one of my favorites, Remember the Titans. Uh, Denzel Washington plays an African-American football coach in an all-white school and that's just been integrated. And they're having football practice one day and they're doing a workout and one character's name's Blue. He's sweating, they're tired, and he looks over at Coach Boone and says, Coach, we've been out here all day, man, we need a water break. And Coach Boone like runs up to him and says, what did you say? He said, we've been out here all day. We need a water break. And Denzel Washington's character says, water is for the weak. Water is for cowards. Water is for getting blood off my uniform. And you don't get blood on my uniform. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do up downs until blue is no longer thirsty. Right? It's that same kind of dynamic that's taking place. The player is telling the coach what needs to happen. And the coach says, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. I tell you what's gonna happen. And the same thing happens with Aaron, Moses, and Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron, these older Israelite men come to this young, cocky ruler and they say, this is what needs to happen. And Pharaoh goes, no, 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 that's not how this works. So he increases their burdens. The taskmasters remove the straw that the Israelites need to make bricks. And then they tell the Israelites, hey, you're still supposed to make the same amount of bricks. So now, instead of the Israelites having to just make bricks with the materials that's already been given them, now they have to go find the material, bring it back, and then still make the same number of bricks. It's an impossible task. It's like doubling the work and expecting the same amount of product. And so the Israelites begin to complain to Pharaoh and complain to the taskmasters, but they're beaten they're abused. And they go to Pharaoh and say, why is this happening? Why, what have we done to deserve this kind of treatment? And Pharaoh responds by saying, you are idle. You are idle. Now remember, if you were here for Fuel Weekend, you heard Garrett talk about how in Hebrew, there's no language for comparative or superlative words. So like we have good, better, and best. 
And that's how we can compare different things. In the Hebrew, the way that they would emphasize something is not good, better, or best, but they would repeat it. So for Pharaoh to say, you are idle, you are idle, it's this emphatic accusation that Pharaoh has against the people of Israel that you are not doing what you're supposed to do. So what happens? Near the end of chapter five, Moses and Aaron are rebuked by the Israelites. The Israelites say to Moses and Aaron, you have made us stink in the eyes of Pharaoh and that they might as well die. They can't keep living like this. So much so that the Israelites say to Moses and Aaron, uh, God judge you. The Lord look on you and judge. Why have you done this to us? Why have you made our lives even more oppressed and even more difficult and even more terrible? And Moses is beyond discouraged. Look at the end of chapter five. He's beyond discouraged. He knew this would happen, right? He gave God all of these reasons why Moses, why he should not be the one to lead the people out of Israel because he's gonna fail. He's not gonna be the one to actually get it done. And so now look what happened. He knew that Pharaoh wouldn't believe him. He knew that Israel wouldn't trust him. And based on his circumstances around him, he is a complete failure. His mind and his heart are filled with doubt to the point that he cries out to God in verse 22. Let's read together. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to these people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses doubted God's power and he doubted himself. Why was he ever sent, he wonders. And if that were the end of the story, it would be a really sad story. But there's 40 chapters in Exodus, not five. And God knows the end and graciously will begin to encourage and reassure Moses of his plan. And that plan may not look exactly like what Moses wants it to look like, but it is coming. But for now... He's filled with doubt, he's filled with discouragement, and he recognizes, left to himself, there's no way this can happen. Let's pray before we go any further. God in heaven, I am convinced that how Moses feels in this moment is probably how many of us feel right now. When we think about our own spiritual life, and we think about the call that you've placed on our lives or the commands that you've given us in your word and we look at how we've obeyed and we look at how we respond to your word, we look at our own circumstances, I wouldn't be surprised to, to know that many of us feel like failures, that many of us walk around day to day with discouragement, that we wonder God, why have you chosen me? What, what, what do you have to do with me? Are you even there for me? If we're honest, many of us wrestle with doubt, just like Moses. So Lord, I pray that as we study your word and we see the, the battle between you and the Pharaoh of Egypt begin here in these chapters, help us to know and to trust that you are good that you are for us and that 
Our standing before you is not dependent on our successes and failures because Jesus has already obeyed on our behalf. He was faithful when we faltered and wavered and failed. So God, help us to understand this text this morning. And by your Holy Spirit, would you apply it to our lives? In Jesus' name, amen. So Moses has failed and the people doubt, but next we see in Exodus chapter six, God will reassure his people of his promise and his power and his love for them. He says, the Lord says to Moses in chapter six, verse one, the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God says to Moses, in the midst of his doubt, in the midst of his failure, in the midst of his confusion, now you're where I want you to be. So that you can see that what's gonna happen in the next few days is not because of you, it's because of my power through you. What mercy. Like how gracious is that? That God says to Moses, oh Moses, just you wait. I'm gonna reveal myself to Israel and to Egypt in ways that they have never imagined. And Israel will be redeemed. The wicked Pharaoh will do exactly what I have commanded him to do. That failure isn't forever. And, and God could have stopped there and it would have been a great encouragement to Moses for the Lord to speak to him and say, no, you're gonna see me do some miraculous things that Pharaoh is gonna do exactly what I want him to do. But he continues the next eight verses with a momentous stream of promises. I just want us to read them together, starting in verse two. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, listen to how many times we hear I, I, I. Verse six, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord." Who's gonna accomplish these things? Who's made promises and covenants and has committed to be faithful to them? God has. Over and over and over again, God identifies himself as the redeemer, as the Lord, as the covenant maker, and more. And verse seven, I think, is key. He says in verse seven, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now remember, Pharaoh's excuse in chapter five for why he's not gonna obey this command is that he does not know the Lord. 
He said, I, I don't know this God of Israel. I don't know this Lord, and I'm not gonna obey him. But God promises Israel, you will know me because I know you. I will be your God. You will be my people. Verse nine shows us that Israel, however, was still unconvinced. Look at verse nine. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. That's not what we wanna hear. We, we want this story to say that Moses tells Israel this story and they immediately respond with encouragement and faith and commitment, but that's not what happens. Moses had just heard incredible news from God himself, but Israel had just bared the brunt in their slavery and in their oppression. And students, we may face this as well. Because Israel is looking at what's immediately around them, they can't look over their current circumstances to see the future that God has promised them. And, and we can do the same thing. If we grade God's goodness or kindness in our lives on just what has happened lately, we may find ourselves quickly doubting his goodness or his power or his love. Why? Because we live in a broken world and you have a broken life. And if all I'm seeing is what's immediately around me, I will have a warped vision of reality. The fact is, we will have to endure hardship and we will suffer in this broken world. God promises this through Jesus. He says, in this trouble, in this world rather, you will find trouble. He also tells them that, that following after Jesus looks like taking up a cross and following after me daily. But God reassures Israel, and through this text he reassures us as well, that he is preparing unimaginable things. He encourages them and he encourages us that even when we don't feel like it or even when our experiences don't seem to line up with God's word or even when our hearts, how we feel and our minds, what we know are out of sync and things don't make sense, we can have faith that God is who he says he is. In verses 10 and 11 God tells Moses to get back to it. He said, look, you've gone before Pharaoh. He's turned you down. I want you to go back. I want you to go back to Pharaoh and ask him again. And he's been reassured. So now he needs to go to Pharaoh. But even Moses wonders, how is Pharaoh gonna listen to him? We see that refrain both in verse 12 and 13 and at the end of chapter six, verses 28 and 29 and 30. Remember, Moses has the same problem as Israel. We saw this very clearly last week. It's difficult for Moses to get his eyes off of himself and to think about his own capacity and his own ability and his own wisdom and his own cleverness and his own speech. And we struggle here too. We can read God's word and we can know that God's word is true and we can understand these wonderful things that God has revealed to us and yet we can leave our Bibles and immediately start to walk in our own strength because it's hard for us to get our eyes off of ourselves. So the Lord reassures him again, tells him that he'll be with him. 
Now, verses 14 through 27, we don't have time to just read it, but trust me, it's a genealogy. It's just a list of names. Now, you might think that's not important, but genealogies are always important or else they wouldn't be in the Bible. So why is this genealogy here? Your headings on your Bible probably says the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. Why right here in Exodus chapter six does Moses think, I need to put down my genealogy? I think that chapter six verses 14 through 27 is here because chapter seven is a pretty big shift in the story of Exodus. And Moses is trying to clue the reader in to a few things with this genealogy, okay? So first, we see in this genealogy that Moses is a Levite. Moses is a Levite. Now, that might not be a big deal to you, but it's a big deal to Israel because the Levites are the priests. The Levites are the one who will serve in the temple under God's ordinance and command to serve as a mediator between God and the rest of Israel, And so what we see in this genealogy is that Moses is a Levite. He is one from this tribe that will give, that will have this job rather of serving before God on behalf of the people. And second in this genealogy, we see that Aaron is a Levite as well. He's not just an illegitimate priest because he's Moses' brother. He's not just like somebody, hey, you're my, my family member or a friend, and so I'm gonna give you this responsibility or this leadership role. No, he is a Levite as well. He's a legitimate priest. And later in Exodus, we'll spend a lot more time seeing Aaron be set up as the high priest of Israel, the one who will offer atonement at the Ark of the Covenant on behalf of the people of God. And the third thing we see in this genealogy, not just that Moses is a Levite, not just that Aaron is a Levite, we learn that Aaron will have a grandson named Phinehas. Now, Phinehas will go on to do different things. It's not necessarily the, it's not necessarily important to this, but the fact that Aaron has a grandson is important for the reader to know. What does it mean that Aaron's son will have a son? It means that God's promise to deliver Israel out of Egypt will come true. That this story isn't going to end with Israel being wiped out by Egypt. That instead, this story is going to end with Israel walking out of Egypt and their lines continue. So God has reassured his people. He's reassured Moses and Aaron. I am with you. I have given you my promise. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. So third, we see in chapter seven, the first 13 verses, Moses and Aaron obey God's word. So here we go. One last reminder and encouragement from the Lord in chapter seven, verses one through five. And Moses and Aaron are headed to Pharaoh. Let's read chapter seven, starting in verse one. And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. 
The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Okay, so there's a bunch going on here. As we kind of march into that aspect of the Exodus story that we're all familiar with, the 10 plagues leading into the Passover, leaning into the actual Exodus event, but we see in these couple of verses that God is reminding Moses yet again that God is the one who will conquer Pharaoh, not Moses. And look at God's reasoning here in verse five. Why is God doing all this? Why does he have to harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply his signs and wonders and use a strong hand and lay his hand on Egypt with great acts of judgment? So that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. We see here in Exodus seven that God is after universal recognition and universal worship. God is king, not over Israel. He is king over all things. And so God is orchestrating these events in such a way that the nation of Egypt is completely without excuse to know that the God of Israel is the true God. Verses six and seven tell us that Moses and Aaron obeyed. They went to Pharaoh. They did what God asked them to do. Now let's look at the last section, starting in verse eight. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. The battle begins. Aaron casts down his staff. It turns into a serpent. A miracle has been done. You would think that Pharaoh is going to believe, okay, these guys are serious. They mean business, but wait. Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing. What's going on here? We have to remember that we live in a world where there is more than meets the eye. And we live in a culture today in America in 2020 where when things happen in our life, we want to immediately run to a reasonable, natural, rational understanding of what just happened. We want to be able to have a scientific answer for what's going on in my life, what's going on in my brain, what's going on in our culture, what's going on in the world. But we have to remember that this natural world is not all that there is. Pharaoh was considered a living God. He was considered divine. And in those days supernatural forces were also considered divine. Now, I'm not talking about like watching ghost hunter stories on TLC. But I am talking about the fact that there are things 
around us that we can't see with our eyes, but that doesn't mean they aren't there. We know that there is only one God, but we also know that there's other supernatural forces in the world. So what does that leave us with? If it's not God and it's not God's angels by his command, then that only leaves Satan and his fallen angels. And the fact is, the devil loves to counterfeit God. He's a deceiver. So it makes total sense that what happens in this story is that Aaron, a messenger from God, performs a miracle and then the magicians of a living God counterfeit the same thing. And we probably shouldn't read too much into this, but isn't it interesting that in this scene, the things that are gonna stop Israel from being led out to worship him are snakes. Pharaoh's looking at these snakes and going, because that's here, I'm not gonna let you do what you should do. Because I can see this serpent in front of me, I'm not gonna let you go and worship the Lord. Again, we shouldn't read too much into that, but I do think it's interesting that of all the animals God could turn the staff into, he decided to turn it into a serpent. So these demonic counterfeits look like a copy of what God has done through Aaron. Aaron drops his staff, turns into a serpent. The magicians drop their staffs, turns into a serpent. It seems like it's exactly the same. It seems like they have the same kind of power. But Moses gives us a hint at how this story will unfold at halfway through verse 12. Look what it says. Verse 12, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. It may seem similar. It may seem like the power is balanced. It may seem like the world around us is really just this balance and this fight between good and evil, light and dark, right and wrong. And if we're not careful, we can fall into this kind of Eastern mysticism that's kind of like yin and yang, that it's this balance that we have to find, that there's gonna be good in the world, there's gonna be bad in the world, there's gonna be light in the world, there's gonna be dark in the world. It's kind of like the force in Star Wars, to be honest. That's where George Lucas got the idea. And if we're not careful as Christians, we will incorporate and become syncretists and take that kind of false religion and false understanding of good and evil and bring them into our own Christian life. So that we just say, well, yeah, there's good things happening in my, in my life, but there's bad things happening in my life. But, you know, it probably just balances out. That's not biblical. It's not right. And I'm sure the devil would love to be known as somebody who has equal power to God. But that's not what happens here. Aaron's staff swallows up the other one's. But the fact is, verse 13, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, just as God said. But this time, this time, Moses was not doubting. This time, there is no indication that Moses is discouraged. Instead, he's reassured by God that he would claim the victory. The battle had just begun, but Moses was convinced it was already over. And students, when you and I look around in our own lives we think about our own circumstances or all the things that we have going on, it may seem like we're barely hanging on. You may feel enslaved to things in your life. It might be a relationship or the desire for a relationship. It may be school. 
or success or the lack of success that you have in your life. Maybe it's your desires for pleasure or for things or for comfort or control. Any number of things. And for many of us, we may say that these things are not going our way. And we're trying to do a certain thing, we're trying to get a certain thing, and it's not happening the way we want. And what I hope you see in the story is that even though things aren't going your way in your life, you can trust that God's way is being accomplished at all times. So if you and I look at the story of Jesus, we would see a man who was acquainted with grief. From human comprehension, things did not seem to be going Jesus' way. Right? I'm preaching the gospel of the kingdom. I'm preaching repentance. And now all the people in this town want to kill me. So I have to go to the other town. And then I preach repentance and I heal the sick and I do these miracles. And now the Pharisees want to put me to death. So I got to keep moving. From a human perspective, the life of Jesus was a masterclass and things not going the way you would want them to go. People doubted him. His closest friends rejected him. He lived a life of poverty. And yet, he trusted the Lord. And he was reassured by his father, both at his baptism and at the transfiguration. Things weren't going his way in one sense, but he knew that God's will would be done in his life. And so he trusted the word of his father. And so now, Christian, if you are in Christ, if, if Jesus by his spirit dwells in you, God assures you in the same ways. In you, God is well pleased because the perfection of Jesus is credited to you by faith. Now that doesn't free us from doubt. So you need to hear that. Don't think like if I'm struggling with whether or not I'm really a Christian or if I have doubts about my faith or doubts about what's real and what's not real, I don't mean this to minimize your problem. I mean this to encourage you. That is not uncommon. It makes total sense that as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of who God is and as we grow in our knowledge of understanding of how sinful we are, then naturally there's going to be some confusion and some doubt. How is it that this great God of heaven would love me? So don't feel like you're the only one in the room who wrestles with these things. Following Jesus doesn't free us from doubt. It doesn't free us from frustration. It doesn't free us from hardship in this life. But it does remind us that when our experiences, what we've done or not done or what's been done to us, when our experiences are causing us to feel like God is not good or merciful or loving or just, when my experiences help me to make me feel those ways, I can rest in what I know. I can allow my heart to catch up with my mind so that I might love God with everything that I have. John Calvin once said that the best thing a person can do who doesn't feel like worshiping the Lord is to worship the Lord. And he's not saying that so that we would just put on a happy face and fake it. That's not what he's after. No, Calvin's point is that we should obey God even when it's hard. And by his grace, our hearts that have been hardened by the circumstances around us or the sins of our own life, when we obey the Lord, when we worship God, those hardened hearts will soften once again to his love, 
and to his compassion. The battle has begun. Faithfulness is hard. But as we'll see in the story of Exodus, God will show up and reveal himself in mighty ways.